his message insofar as it offered real, actionable, practical solutions for how to think about ordering your own life to escape the negativity and the chaos and the nonsense that comes your way. It's like the best thing you could ever possibly do to help the world. And then he layers in the meta story archetypes of why that can connect to a broader sense of purpose. That's all great, but you can't lose it. How do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning? Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life. Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today is the only person besides Bo Burnham to make me laugh at a song about math. He's gone from showing us a thousand ways to die on Spike TV to showing us a thousand ways to save America. In 2010, he thought there must be something better that I can do with my life than promote SpongeBob. Since then, his production company, Emergent Order, has focused on creating media to ask hard questions and guide us towards the values that founded America. He wants to inspire the next generation of men to embrace their role as dads and see it as heroic and essential, not just to their families, but for their communities and the future of the country. John Popola, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You have a little bit of a unique take here that I don't think people would necessarily see as normal, but why is Vito Carleone the best movie dad of all time? <laughs> That's a deep cut reference to something that I think I said off the cuff that I'm not even sure I can replicate. So I'll answer fresh, which might be different than prior answers given. Well, I think one thing that Vito did is he didn't shield his kids from taking risks, right? He didn't baby them and pamper them. He didn't helicopter them. And, you know, he lets Michael go off to Italy to chart his own course. And I think that's something that we've lost in this country, especially if you're upper middle class, although it doesn't have to be that. But in some ways, there's like a wealth disease here where parents just fly over our kids' lives, trying to mediate every single thing they do. And we have these like terms that get thrown around now that didn't exist in my now increasingly gray beard times when I was a kid. Like everything's a play date. There was no, there was just play. There was no play yeah, date. Yeah, you just went outside and you, you, just went, you went home like, to your friend's house after school. There was no like- Yeah, there's no, oh, the adults need to schedule it and there's a start and an end date and let's make a play date for our kids. Like none of that, that wasn't a thing. It was like, no, you had the friends that you happened to have in your neighborhood where you could run or bike to. And you just went and did that as soon as you got home from school. And the amount of time that I spent and that I tried to make sure my son has spent without any adults or authority figures lording over them, stepping in the second somebody got uncomfortable, you know, that is essential time. And Vito, he let his boys make their mistakes, sometimes to tragic and fatal ends. So... <laughs> You know, in that respect, I think we could learn a lot from Vito Coulion. How's that? <laughs> Great. How much then has Jonathan Haidt's book, Coddling of the American Mind, had an impact on what you think about? You know, that book came into my life at a time where I was observing some of these dynamics firsthand with my son and not with his behavior directly because he's never really had struggles with anxiety or anything like that. To his credit, and I think to my mine and my wife's as well. But I saw his peers and what they were going through. And I actually started to formulate a film about this when that book came out. I was like, this is, I was like, I don't know how we're going to have a free society where the individual right to pursue your happiness and take risks and be entrepreneurial 
I don't know how that survives multiple generations that are afraid of their own shadow and, and are constantly looking for to be told what to do. And then when that book sort of laid out a systematic way of thinking about the causes that I think is deeply true and is, is only for like, it's only become more and more central to, you know, trying to understand what's changing, not just in America, but I think in the West, I think specifically in the Anglo sphere. So the English speaking countries seem especially afflicted by the pathologies of that book. And yet it's had a profound impact on how I think about things. It's had a profound impact on how I even define my own worldview, frankly. So, you know, it's been a big one for me. I think worldview is one of those things in America, especially. And so I don't necessarily attribute this to the fault of a lot of people in America because they're not taught otherwise. And the I bring this back to you can get pretty much any trip, climate, destination, activity you want staying within the confines of America. So you never have you're, or you're never forced to explore outside of the borders of the country to mm. understand a different cultural or worldview perspective. And I took a seven month trip to Thailand back in 2017. And in that like seven months, just living abroad, it basically flipped my entire worldview upside down. Like I was a, an avid Bernie supporter prior to 2016 and then just completely flipped my whole worldview. So like, what was I, it? How did that happen? I think it was to do a lot of this for me comes back to like a gratitude and like understanding that like the problems that I have are like not anywhere close to the problems that anybody else has. And that yeah. if like half the world saw the problems I have, they would like crawl through a burning building to like accept the problems that I have over their own. And that's not to say that people can't take time to feel sorry for whatever their own individual needs are, but like just understanding that that's the baseline that I have to work from. And then everything on el else on top of that is sort of gravy. So. You know, one of the ways I think it's this very powerful thing that we have as humans, our social adaptability is kind of amazing, right? So when, and I remember that going all the way back to college, I had a great criminology class. And there was this term that this Dr. Stefan Smeyer used, I think it was called anime or anime not anime, like anime, and it was norms. Yeah. And it was the notion that your norms can shift and criminals sort of essentially, people who, be, who become sort of acculturated into a life of crime, they just shift outside of the norms of, of the rest of the society. But also, but that shift, especially if you're, if you're a repeat offender, if you end up in prison, you just adapt to the norms of the environment you're in and they come to be what you expect. And, and I think that happens in both directions. So I think we can survive in prison by adapting to the norms on one level. And we can adapt to the norms of what by historical standards are extreme science fiction level opulence of modern America. And some of those adaptations can be kind of bad and unhealthy for like our underlying human hardware. It's like a psychological partial adaptation that the hardware doesn't adapt to. And so this is what I think is, that's a big part. I think a lot of the psychology problems we're facing are like that. And I think you're pointing to it. It's like you go into countries that are developing or third world and where there's genuine poverty and where you can go there and come back to America and say like, oh, we have fake poverty. We have poverty where our poor people are obese. Like that's not a thing that happens in places with real poverty. 
the, the poor people are, they might, if they have large bellies, it's because they're distended from disease. It's not because they're eating fast food and they're in a food desert and all these, like, so I think that is a big eye opener. And to come back to America and hear people saying we need to fundamentally reimagine our society because it's so deeply broken from a place that would love to have our brokenness. Yeah, I can't remember if it was in Alex Epstein's book or in Bjorn Lomberg's book, but they were talking that there's some crazy high percentage of the world that runs on enough electricity in a day to power an American refrigerator. So you're comparing basically apples to a cheesesteak sandwich or something. Yeah, it's true. And it's probably in both, to be to be honest, it's of a totally different category of reality. And good for you for, t for having that experience and coming away from it changed for the better, I think. Speaking of those guys, what's the most important thing you learned from the ARC conference in November? Oh, that's an interesting question. What I learned. You know, for me, when I go to conferences like that, so much of it is about, you know, so this is for people that aren't familiar, the ARC is this sort of, I'd say, broadly classical liberal big tent thing that Jordan Peterson and the, the Strouds Put together. And it was kind of a who's who of heterodox thinkers and, and sort of conservative to libertarian to liberal, but not woke, not identitarian thinkers. And, you know, I think the hardest challenge, this isn't so much a learning, but the hardest challenge is that all the same values that have always mattered, matter the same. And a lot of what was presented were rearticulations of sort of value, like classical values and virtues that, you know, we're framed as we need a new story, but I'm not sure there is a new story. I, th I think there's not, there isn't, you know, there aren't that many stories in general. You know, I think, what is it? There's like, there's some different kinds of ways of thinking about this. Some people say there's only really seven primary story archetypes and you can find them all in Shakespeare and they just are all the same. And I think that the challenge and the struggle is how to think about preserving the things that have allowed humanity to flourish and to start to unlock potential that never, that was unimaginable, say a hundred years ago, how to preserve that, but still keep innovating and changing and not sort of collapsing into like a conservatism in a small C sense that become very like only concerned with protection and protecting of what we have and who we are right now and the composition of our country right now. And it's challenging to me. I, you know, I have a very a very strongly radical libertarian streak, but I'm also Catholic, which is like 2000 years of not much change <laughs> in a hierarchical top-down institution that has a, a single head for the globe, the, the Pope. So I think those two things can live side by side perfectly happy because, but I think that these are some of the things we're grappling with. Like, well, what, if not radical freedom, then what? I've never heard a good answer to that other than caution in the face of rapid change, which is Chester like Chesterton's fence. You know that, oh, maybe we should not rip up all of the things that constitute our traditions and habits all at the same time with no replacement other than communist utopia. But who's the we? You know, it's like, who's doing this and who's not doing this? Who's participating in this versus going along? Who's the leader and the follower in all of this that we're talking about? We get into these shorthands about, we need a new story. Well, who's we exactly? What does that mean? It gets metaphysical and sort of, you know, meta very quickly when you try to think about this stuff on such a big scale. I think last week's video essay that you did on Obama's new movie sort of did a fantastic job of laying out an alternate vision to this like sort of nihilistic 
cultural zeitgeist. Can you like break down the motivation and message behind that video? Because I think it sort of serves as like a perfect meta example for a lot of the content that you guys at the Emergent Order Foundation are creating. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, for, I mean, for starters, I'm stepping into new territory for me on a lot of fronts, and especially in the past four months, because I've always been a guy that's mostly behind the camera with a lot of things to, I'm excited about as being very curious. And I'm really not a expert in anything other than filmmaking, but as a practice. But at the heart of that, so this movie, Leave the World Behind, is a very strange moment. Like, it's very strange. And it's easy. And we have come to such a strange place in America that this isn't even seen as being strange. So it just kind of this, this is a movie through as like, oh, yeah, this is normal. The former president of the United States is producing a movie about how the world is going to end. Right. How America in America will collapse into either civil war or it's not clear in the movie who the enemy is. But there's but something's going on that seems to bring the country to a cyber attacked down to hot warfare disaster. And I happen to love sci-fi, dystopia, apocalyptic movies. I love them. I like, I'm like generally kind of an optimistic guy. So, you know, I got Legos over my shoulder cause I'm basically a big 13 year old boy. So I like to play and I like to have fun, but like whether it's Independence Day back in the nineties or whether it's 2012, like the old, the old like Roland Emmerich movies or more modern stuff like World War Z or you name it, zombie apocalypse, whatever. It's all exciting and fun. It's all a roller coaster. So, and the movies actually, I kind of like the movie actually. I've seen it now three times, but you would never in a million years imagine that Bill Clinton or George Herbert Walker Bush or Jimmy Carter, certainly not Ronald Reagan, who of all of them was the, would be the most likely president to leave office and make a movie because he was an actor and a, and a Hollywood guy. You'd never in a million years think any one of these people I think Trump is an exception because he's a wacko and, and a weird aberration of our politics, some for the better, some for the worse, but would, would come out recognizing that you will always be a president. You, will, you, can't, you never get to escape being the former president. You will be called President Obama until the day you die and for hundreds of years after, so long as the country exists. To make that kind of movie, to put your name on that movie, in the promotion of that movie, be out there or having your surrogates out there saying how much you were passionate about it and from script to screen were giving detailed notes about it. You weren't just like putting a stamp on it. That is crazy. And so that was the starting point of this essay was that that's crazy. And let's look at what this movie is saying. And let's look at the subtextual things that sometimes break through into the actual dialogue about the current state of like relationships in, in the country, because it's like a very microcosmic movie, very intentionally so. A small number of people are brought together and there's, it's like overwrought with totally unbelievable racial tension, like as if this family, this Park Slope family, who's the mother, the wife is a ad exec, and the husband is like an author and a book critic or something, that they would have like, they'd be so off put that the wealthy home they're staying in was like owned by a black family or something. And that the whole thing is so weird. And so I used it basically as an opportunity to just reflect on 
this is a worldview, this vision of like permanent divisiveness of, in, of, a, of an uncrossable chasm based on identity that prevents any empathy from ever truly happening. That is what wokeism is. That is what this critical theory collectivism. I mean, that's really, I think, the ultimate mega framing. It really just boils down to like old Ayn Rand individualism versus collectivism. Do you see the unit of human understanding to be first and foremost, but not singularly. The individual mind, or that we're just like atoms in a cloud, we're just cogs in a collective machine. And this movie and that, this worldview is that, no, 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 we are cogs in a machine. And that race has come to define us. And that I think the movie is fairly explicit in this, that we are so divided. And it doesn't say in dialogue that we're divided on race. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. And I, I call out and, and clip out all the moments where that's really foreground. And there's not that much dialogue in this movie. So these are impactful moments when they happen. That we're just so hopelessly divided and that we are at risk of a civil war or an attack from without that would be potentially catastrophic. And, and the reason why this, and the, to the extent that that's true, this president played a role in making it worse. And he did. Like, and I cite other thinkers and people, you know, again, in some sense, I'm going out on a limb talking about race in America. At another level, I'm sick and tired of people saying that your identity is what gives you the license to talk about important issues that affect all of us and others. So the notion that I, because I'm a, of European descent, that I can't talk about race without just being some kind of ism, that's a barbaric, anti-human, you know, or just fundamentally tribal, you know, way to look at the world. And I just reject it. I'm not going to pay any attention to that anymore. I'm just not going to give it any credence. I was listening to you talk. It was your first live stream that you did during COVID. And you said that every person I've talked to who has overcome adversity says that embracing victimhood is a path to hell. This so, is true. As we're going down the brainstem of isms, that's sort of where the bottom gets to, I think. Well, because I think that, and that was the fundamental message of this video was that, look, I've never met anybody that was inspired by being told all the reasons they can't accomplish something and that all these barriers are standing in their way. There are people who do get motivated by being told no, because they're, they're like a certain kind of ornery alpha, a disagreeable type that says, oh, you tell me no, I'm going triple hard. And God bless them. And I'm mostly not that way, but I'm a little bit that way. My wife is 100% that way. You tell her something can't be accomplished, you have guaranteed that it will happen. I think that there are people who thrive on being on confrontation and on being told, no, you can't do it and being able to overcome that. And so that is certainly an exception to the general rule in one sense, but coaches don't do this. Coaches don't say you guys can't do it. They might use a little reverse psychology from time to time, but this is not the way motivation works. And especially not for young kids who are trying to understand what the world is, what their place in it is. It's just evil. It's just evil manipulation. And everyone that sees this for what it is needs to stand up and say, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to participate in this ideology of victimhood. You know, I've referenced, I will keep coming back to this reference. I reference it in the video, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I think it's such a powerful, it's maybe the, it's like the book everyone needs to read right now, because here's a man that went through the Holocaust. He went through all the major concentration camps as a Jewish German and a psychologist. And so he writes this book in the, you know, so he survives and he lives to write this book about the experience and about what can be understood from it. And he develops a kind of psychology, calls it logotherapy, that is 
entirely predicated on the pursuit of meaning and discovery of the absence of meaning and purpose as a fundamental cause of a lot of disordered thinking and psychological distress. And I think that is so, and what's shocking about reading this book, because I read it actually for the first time this summer, my son had read it in seventh grade and it had a big impact on him. So I was like, I got to read this book. I, I feel like I read it, but I guess maybe I haven't read it. And it turns out I hadn't. You've I picked up enough from the conversations of the circles that you run in, of course. Yeah, I, I got the gist of it kind of from others, but we, the people that would survive the Holocaust, the people who didn't lose hope, they held on to the final freedom that every person has so long as their mind is operable. And that is the freedom to decide how to respond to your circumstance. So even if it is true that you are a young black person in a horrible neighborhood and you feel like your world really is stacked against you, you still have the freedom in your mind to choose. Are you going to see this as something that defeats you? Or are you going to see this as motivation to get out of your neighborhood or to stay in school and power through it. And I've talked to a lot of people on our show on Dad Saves America who've done just that. In fact, I just had Eric July in the studio yesterday and he shared this exact experience that he was, he was gangbanging and like, you know, could have easily been killed, had friends that got killed, had been shot, all kinds of horrible stuff. And now he's a like unbelievably successful media personality, an entrepreneur that's building a business, you know, doing comic books and, and new media. And he's, he's not just criticizing this, the current order. He's, he's building replacements. He's a hero. He's doing heroic stuff. So, you know, to the people who say systemic this, systemic that, the most important thing you can do is put your fist in the air and go out into the street with a bunch of latte drinking goons and proclaim that you're a part of a resistance to something. Like, you're lame. You got nothing. And I'm not going to pay attention to anything you have to say if this is what you have to say. If you can get your head screwed on straight, I'm all for it. If you want to make a real argument, I'm all for it. If you're just going to call me a white supremacist or what, anyone that, or like, I, then you're just, you're just a child and you're acting, you're just throwing a temper tantrum. And you know, the, the best tactic for dealing with temper tantrums is to deny them, deny the child the attention they're seeking. And that's what my wife did brilliantly with my son. When he would start losing his mind and screaming like an imbecile about nothing, she would say, I don't like that. That's not something I, and then she'd turn away from him and turn her back to him. Like, no, you don't get my attention by acting that way. And every adult in this country needs to deprive the tantrum, the temper tantrum throwers of, an, of, of their attention, which is what, the only thing that they're really doing it for in the first place. Anyway. It's a good jumping off point. My wife had her first 12-week ultrasound on Monday. So what's the most unconventional new dad advice that you can give me? Oh my God, that's so awesome. So congratulations. Thank you. This is your first? Okay. Unconventional dad advice. Well- Or conventional, but- Here's game. here's my advice. Whether it's un, whether it's unconventional or not, I'll leave I'll leave it to the viewer and to you. To <laughs> so uh, a couple pieces of advice. So number one, spend this time while you and your while you're before he's he or she is born, really ma making sure you're aligned with your spouse on values and principles for how you're going to approach this. Because what you need to be is a united front. And at the outset, at the beginning, 
the baby is like a little plant. Like we are such a weird mammal that we just come out helpless. And it's just months and years before we're like a functional thing. And so that's gonna just challenge you physically because of sleep and whatnot and stress. But enjoy it, get plenty of skin to skin time with your little one, you know, all that kind of great stuff. But stay on the same page with your with your wife about like, how are we gonna approach things? What's our strategy gonna be? Keep Keep it simple and stick to it as you're yeah, get sleep when you can you know the baby i know you know if you're anything like me you're not going to read any baby books that's not what <laughs> doing, generally speaking so but you know she might <laughs> maybe you will who knows i heard a comment totally unrelated on a separate podcast the other day that was like a hockey podcast that i listened to of all things and one of the guys just says if there's a thousand books on something there's no books on something right that's right. <laughs> so everybody's got their take on something different. So there it's, you go. Um, I think it's so in one sense, it's simple. And we've maybe we've been lucky because we didn't have our son hasn't suffered from any serious problems that would push us into hard strategies that really like whether it's disease or mental illness or varying kinds of disability or neurodivergent stuff autism, all that kind of thing that really make create different challenges. But in general, it's like, look, you want to be consistent on discipline. You want to basically create essentially like an optimal classical liberal environment, have a few rules, keep them simple and understand, enforce them with consistency, you know, and the rest have, and then honestly have, have as much fun as you can enjoy it and put in as much time as you can, because you won't get that time back and then you'll die and you'll be on your deathbed wondering why didn't I spend more time with my kids? I mean, I interviewed Danny DeVito and that was a piece of advice he got that he shared in, in that interview that when he was early in his career, he met this big actor that was like this, I forget the guy's name, but he was like this big sort of comedy actor that was like a legend of old Hollywood star system. And he saw Danny like playing on the, on the airport floor with his kids and and said, you know, this is great. I love to see this. You know, I've really, I really neglected my relationship with my kids and I've tried to catch up, but you just don't get this time back. And that stuck with him and, you know, and he made it a priority. And that, that's the biggest piece of advice is like, don't listen to the hustle porn hucksters telling you that what you need to do is grind 24 seven and your kids will be thankful when you've raised, when you've earned enough money that you can send them to Harvard or some idiotic nonsense no thanks you know. dad i love you thanks for sending me to harvard that's what i really <laughs> yeah, thanks, as a, thanks for sending as me to a five-year-old bigoted communist hellhole training camp surrounded oh by silver spooners <laughs> and, and diversity hires it's like what a disaster what a wretched <laughs> what a wretched goal for america's best and brightest so-called you seem to be very intentional about naming things and that's sort of close to my heart i started with the name distilled as a consequence of trying to boil the ocean of wisdom as it were but you have two very intentional things in emergent order and dad saves america can you talk a little bit about the sort of story behind the founding of both of those and more specifically to the point on dad saves america why dad saves america why not john saves america why not how to save america why not something else saves america why dad saves america well, I was saying earlier in our conversation about this documentary film that was going to that was going to come out of that of the coddling of the American mind. Did I mention? I think you know we talked about the, that that ended up becoming Dad Saves America. That work engaging in that material, but that wasn't it. Wasn't initially a dad focus. In fact, it was just about parents and about our kids. And then 
you know, me and my small team, as we were building, starting to like build this new foundation, like the foundation for the foundation, so to speak, Lisa, my wife and partner and everything said, this shouldn't be about parenting. This should be about dads and men. You know, you were at Spike TV, being a dad is the most important thing in your whole life. It always has been. You talk about it all the time. We got, this is what it should be. And like, we had brought on a new head of production, Justin, who is really passionate about this as well. And he, he said, Hey, you know, we need to get Warren Farrell. And I read the boy crisis and I don't see you. These are things that if you're, I feel like if you're functional and aware, you can't unsee, you can't unsee how bad it is for the society, for men and boys to go down the dark road that has happened in this country where, you know, along every measurable dimension from life outcomes like work and, and employment to incarceration is kind of obvious because of the way men and women are different <laughs> in, in the extremes. Right. Yeah. But educational attainment to the extent that's worth anything, you know, mental health, suicide rates, longevity, physical health, income, work, unemployment rate, every dimension men have men and boys have retrenched relative to the past and relative to women. And then you layer into that one in four Americans are being raised without a biological step or adoptive father. So that is this accelerant that is both a cause and then a continuance of this problem. And that's bad for girls too. Like young girls who are raised without that father figure in their home end up more likely to become pregnant as teenagers and out of wedlock, to have malformed relationships with men, to not have like a, a proper healthy understanding of what it means to be in a loving relationship with a man. But but the women that are health, want a healthy relationship, there is a lot fewer good men to choose from. So, you know, someone who's become a friend of mine, Chris Williamson, with his absolutely, you know, blockbuster. I, yeah, podcast. I don't think I pay more attention to anybody else in the online sphere than him. So, uh, yeah, so he, he moved to Austin doing a couple years work back. Over there. He moved to Austin. Uh, I, I met him at, a, at like a random dinner that he showed up with Michael Malice, who's also someone I've known for a while. And, and then we sort of hit it off over, over time and we sort of consult on production because we're sort of, we're in more rarefied company together as far as our emphasis on cinematic production value. And he does a great job of exploring this stuff, especially as like a single guy, like looking at things for younger men around, you know, mindset and health and fitness. And, you know, so that's, I kind of see us as like very highly complimentary in that way. So that's why dad saves America. I mean, it's really dad saves society or civilization, if you really want to be honest. And it's not like, and this is the other thing about our times. This is not to say that men and moms don't also need to save. It is a brand that's partly a function of the need, you know, and a function of me. Like, who am I? Like, I'm the guy on screen. So I'm a dad. It's like, number one, like that is the most, when my son was born, and this sort of speaks to your broad, the beginning of your question. I've always been creative and project driven. So I loved building Legos because they're projects. I love drawing, creating comic books because they're projects. Videos are projects. There's a certain kind of entrepreneurism in make, in having projects. But I never really thought of myself as like starting a business or being a business owner or an entrepreneur. That's a whole different thing. That's a different set of risks and things. And I just did, you know, I was more of a craftsman. And then when my son was born, it like radically transformed me, me in ways I didn't really expect. I'm actually going to be doing a video essay on this and I've talked about it along the way 
quite a bit, but it was the most liberating thing that's ever happened to me. So you want to say like, what's my unconventional dad advice? Well, number one, become one. And number two, pay no attention to people that say that the biggest thing that's going to happen is now you're going to have more responsibility and that's going to help you. You're going to have to man up for the responsibility. Not that that's not true, but if you're remotely ambitious and have your act together at all, what might happen for you is what happened for me, which is it reordered my understanding of what matters in such a way that it turned all of my own pursuits into easy games that I'm not afraid to lose. And when you're not afraid to lose the game, you play even harder. When you're not afraid to walk away from the table, you negotiate way more forcefully and way more successfully. And so when my son was born, it was like, oh, my desire to become Steven Spielberg or achieve X, Y, and Z success and as a filmmaker, as a pro producer, as whatever. That's all gravy. So long as he's healthy and so long as my family is intact and is doing okay, everything else is a bonus. And that meant, oh, I can quit my high, my like not high enough paying job, frankly, given for the cost of living when I was in, in Manhattan, but I can quit this job that I'm a, on a fast track to become God knows what, probably fired during a, a, one of the various mergers between this or that conglomerate, but I can quit this and start a company to start a crazy company that's going to make like liberty oriented YouTube videos, which is like an insane proposition in 2011 when you're like a dad with a young family. But that's exactly what it did. It was completely transformational. It was, you know, I, I've said like, it's sort of like a kind of FU psychic money. I can walk away from the table. Now I got this, I got everything I need. I can say no to things I don't want to do. And, and so that superpower that came from becoming a dad is part of why it became so core to my identity. And I think it's like our genetic destiny to become fathers. Not everyone, some people are infertile, some people really don't want to, no matter what happens in their life. I feel bad for those that want to and can't, and I don't care if you don't want to, and that's fine. But for most of us, because we are still a species on the planet, this is the thing that we do. <laughs> that's really essential to our fundamental nature as a surviving biological creature. And so the notion that this wouldn't be an absolutely powerful, essential part of your whole identity is crazy. And that we've relegated it, delegated it, diminished it in our culture is crazy. It's psychosis. It's psychopathy. And so that's why Dad Saves America is what it is and why it's called what it is and where it comes from. Because, you know, if we don't right this ship, we, we are heading down a dark path. And I am generally an optimist, but these are the areas where my pessimism or maybe just realism come in. It's like, we can't live in a world where there aren't enough good real men to team up with the ever-growing army of smart, capable, well-educated, high-earning women that want an equally or even or an equally smart, capable, high earning man. Like we can't, that bird, that dog can't hunt. So for those who are like, that's heteronormative, blah, 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 like chat woke GPT response. I'm sorry, reality doesn't comport with the way you like things to be, but too bad. Yeah, you said, I think they're, we're suffering from a supply constraint of worthy men. Yeah, and like some of that's on men and some of it's, but I mean like that's, this is a macro problem. So. I mean, and I think the thing is, is that we can't wait for macro solutions. 
there's a macroeconomist named Roger Garrison, whose like work never rose out of like super technical Austrian economic nerdery. But I think he was the one to coin. I might be wrong about this. This might have been Robert Lucas. Some nerdy economist said there are macro problems, but only micro causes and micro solutions. That this notion that oh, we have excess demand for everything. And so we need to increase supply of everything and that we have supply and demand for everything, like aggregate supply, aggregate demand. Like that is a story told on a graph, but that people don't bid for everything. People don't go to the market and say, I'd like a little bit of everything. Like that's not how that works. People say, I want a car. I want a house. I want this particular food. I want this particular raw material. <laughs> and then it adds up to an aggregate, but there is only microactivity. So we only get to act in our individual lives as a human action, as a human agent. We don't get to shift the culture, really. We shift ourselves. And that's the most powerful thing to go back to like ARC from earlier in our conversation. That's the best part about Jordan Peterson. His message insofar as it offered real, actionable, practical solutions for how to think about ordering your own life to escape the negativity and the chaos and the nonsense that comes your way is, is like the best thing you could ever possibly do to help the world. And then he layers in the meta story archetypes of why that can connect to a broader sense of purpose. That's all great, but you can't lose. It's about what you do in your life. It, that's it. If everyone actually acted against the golden rule, the world would be transformed overnight. If I could go, boom, how about everybody acts according to the golden rule individually without talking to anybody else about what they're doing. They just privately decide tomorrow, I'm just going to live my life as if the golden rule is the only programming I have in my head. The entire world is transformed instantly without any policymaker or any election or any of that nonsense. And that's like the whole message for what I'm about. Here's these problems. We can talk about them. And if you look at these essays I've been writing, the back portion is always like, well, what are you going to do about it in your life? Not how you're going to vote, not who, not whose team you're, you should be on. I, I don't care about any of that. None of that matters. I'm a big proponent of the saying, if you're waiting for DC to fix your life, you're going to be waiting a really fucking long time. So take some personal agency in your own life and figure it out because that's the only person that's coming to save you. Yeah, that is right. And that's also, I think, where like, I'm not an objectivist, but a lot of people say, oh, Ayn Rand is for like young people with the zealotry of youth. But there's a lot more wisdom in her reductionist prescription than you than, than seems obvious you, I think there's like a life cycle. Like I, you read Rand when when you're li when you're like 17, and you're like this explains everything, and then you like progress, and then you say, oh, maybe not so much, and then, but then you pro maybe you come back and say, actually, most of the stuff is actually pretty damn spot. It's like the midwit meme, right? I'm just trying to be the guy on the the left. Yeah, 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 exactly. What's the Polaris Fellowship, and how does it fit into your role of narrative as? Uh... A mentor. Oh, well, I, that's, you're talking about through uh, the University of Austin? Well, I, you know, so UATX, which is this new University of Austin here, I've been working closely with them. Help, you know, we've worked with them on some of their launch content now that they're accepting, you know, student applicants. And so this is a school dedicated to actual pursuit of truth and open discourse as a fundamental virtue written into its constitution and funded by people who believe in that. And I'm very excited about it. And so I've participated in some early stage programs with them to talk to students and to just be, try to be a mentor for people. And I've created over the years 
fellowship. Almost every year since 2013, I have been running some form of a fellowship at Emergent Order and participating in others to try to work with young creatives that want to improve their skills and work with professionals that know what they're doing and share the values of a free society and want to incorporate those things and integrate them in some way. How do you think about your role in Story of America? <laughs> My ending question for the podcast. There's a paper by Friedrich Hayek called The Role Intellectuals and Socialism. I find this paper very, very interesting. And in it, he talks about many things about why intellectuals are attracted to this fundamentally slaveocracy worldview that says that we all own each other, but it turns out some of us own others a little more than we own them. You know, it's an animal farm, philosophy, socialism. But why would that be? Why would intellectuals gravitate towards this? And among the things he talks about are the role of what he calls secondhand dealers of information. So that there's sort of primary, let's say, researchers in the sciences and philosophers who try to try to disentangle the nature of thought or the nature of ethics. And then there's this like outer ring of people, journalists, filmmakers, artists, poets, who aren't devoting their entire lives to a narrow disciplinary study of any one of these things, but grab from them. And he's, all, he's, he's mostly critical of this crowd because it's sort of like the people who say that humanity is on the verge of extinction, even though none of the underlying reporting in any of the science being done on climate says anything like that at all. Nothing in the IPCC reports from the UN says there's anything other than a healthier, wealthier world ahead, period, full stop, not a crisis. There's no crisis. Anyone that says there's a crisis is a liar and is a manipulator and is engaged in hardcore propaganda, period, full stop. Go look it up, go read the reports. So the secondhand dealers of information, Say, oh, they're, you get to, in 12 years, we're all dead through the secondhand dealers of information. I want to be one of the good ones of that. I want to be somebody who takes these thinkers, Haidt, Hayek, uh, I, I, you know, and others, and brings them to life through, with my skills as a tradesman, as a filmmaker, as a video maker, to bring good ideas to life, to bring the ideas of Thomas Sowell to life, to, br to bring things that, that, need, that need a hearing into the public sphere in a way that's accessible. And sometimes I'm too geeky. And people can say, well, you're just kind of being an ideological propagandist and perhaps I'm guilty as charged. But that's what I see myself as doing. That's my role. I also have a bit of a tradition with a last question on the podcast. And mine sort of comes back to this sort of free thinking idea that we've been talking about for an hour. And that's to ask the question, what's the last thing that you changed your mind about? Ooh, great question. Hmm. I'm gonna think, I need to think about this. Can be an ice cream flavor or a new take on real estate or anything in between. I mean, I change my mind all the time at the, at the individual level of our work. Like I have ideas and then decide they don't work and things like that. You know, I, I'm going to say that this is not that my mind has changed, but I have come to be through my sort of radical libertarian inclinations, essentially an open borders guy, you know, insofar as I think that the work that, you know, Brian Kaplan has done on this matter is pretty darn persuasive, aside from just a first principles right for people to move about this planet. And I'm not going to say that I reject that, but it does strike me that I have to contend with it more in the real world. And so I have found myself unsure of what the best way to think about that is. And so I have shifted somewhat from a 
more doctrinaire first principles position to a that's an ideal, but it might be an unstable ideal and one that self-defeats if it's taking, if it's happening in the wrong way. And that doesn't leave me with a lot of optimism for like the scumbags in DC to make decisions that'll be anything other than horrible as far as who gets in and how and what and where. But that's a serious sub subject that I'm grappling with. I haven't heard good answers. I don't take reactionary, look at all these people. We have too many of them. That's a bunch. I don't, that's not an argument, but yeah, that's a big one. John Popola, where should we send people? Find well, out the stuff you're doing. I appreciate it. If you want to see the big picture and want to learn more about the organization, you can go to eo.foundation. That's our website. And you'll, you'll see content there and also an opportunity to donate, which is always great because that's how we fund our work is through individuals supporting what we're doing. And, you know, if you want to hear me talking a lot, <laughs> you can check more of that out at Dad Saves America on YouTube in particular. There's dadsavesamerica.com, but really the primary platform is youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. That's great, John. I really appreciate you coming on the show and it's been lovely to chat with you for the past hour. Thanks, Blake. It's been a, it's been a blast and good luck on your new dad journey <laughs> and may your wife have a healthy, uneventful pregnancy. Thank you.